The following is a resource from the Dwark Hill Study Center. Dwark Hill exists to help Christians take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We hope that you enjoy this lecture. Tonight's lecture is called Before the Fig Leaves, Gender and the Image of God. And our speaker this evening is uh, Reverend Steve Froelich. Steve is a pastor in the PCA in in, uh, the New York State Presbytery. Uh, He just recently, not too recently, but recently got his uh, Doctorate of Divinity um, uh, uh, at Gordon-Conwell on vocational discipleship. Steve, help me. Help me. Okay, vocational discipleship. We're going to have him back somewhere in the future. I just haven't told him yet to come and to, right. uh, to Wait talk. Wait until after the lecture. <laughs> Wait until after. We'll let you vote. Uh, but, uh, but no, we're gonna, Steve has done some great work and some writing on, uh, on the, the theology of work and vocation. And uh, he's done some publishing on it, some writing, some articles. He's written for us. He, or, or we, he allowed us to have use of one of his articles uh, up at our website. And I encourage you to go there to dwarkhill.org. And we have some articles and blogs, and we have one of Steve's called uh, Blaming God. And it's an excellent article. Um, also, just a note about the audio tonight. We are recording this, and uh, Steve is going to give the lecture, after which I'm going to come up, and we're going to have a time of Q&A. So be thinking as Steve's talking about questions that might be on your heart and mine. This, of course, you can't get a more relevant topic than this for us tonight. And so as Steve comes, think of your questions. I'll come up. We'll have a time of Q&A. And, uh, and you'll be a, there'll be a mic being passed around to you as we do that. I'll remind you of this uh, so that your questions can be recorded. So you'll be on, there'll be a little pressure on you. Uh, uh, but uh, no worries if it's bad. We have great editors back there. Jerry's looking at me. Wonderful editors. So anyway, uh, I'm very excited to have Steve. I'm very thankful, Steve, for you uh, coming down here and do this. So let me pray, and, uh, and then let Steve come and speak to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. And we thank you for all who have gathered here. Father, we're especially thankful for Steve and his wife, Cheryl, being here with us tonight. And uh, Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear tonight. We pray that you would give us hearts that are willing to learn and be shaped on such a relevant and challenging issue as this. And so we pray that you'd bless Steve as he talks, Father. Give him the words to say and us the hearts and minds to receive. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Steve. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. It's a real privilege uh, to be with you tonight. Uh, Cheryl and I have been in Ithaca for 18 years. We moved to Ithaca after 12 years in Mississippi, which is uh, further than miles. And when I was landing in Ithaca, uh, I asked one of the retired faculty members from Cornell as he was taking me back to the airport after my, my visit. I said, Doug, if I were to come pastor this church in Ithaca, what advice would you give me? And without missing a beat, he said, talk about what you know about, don't talk about what you don't know about. And those are words to live and die by. Uh, I can tell you tonight that while I'm not a master of this topic, I do know a little bit more than I did a year ago. It was about a year ago that uh, one of the college students in our congregation, uh, she and her family were part of our, uh, they were already part of the church when we arrived. And so I have watched her grow up. And she said to me, I want you to know that I am deeply committed to Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and my Savior. I want to follow him and be faithful to him. 
I also love our church. I feel at home here. I feel safe here. Uh, I want to continue to be a part of this church. And I'm also a male. All right, well, I didn't have too many categories uh, for that. And, but I took the first two statements that she made very seriously. And I said, however I respond to the third part of that statement, it can't be a denial of the first two. So what does it mean for her to live faithfully uh, with uh, what she has been struggling with all of her life? Uh, she told me things about her life that I didn't know, uh, that she'd been unwilling to disclose to anyone outside the family. And um, when I heard the details, it brought tears to my eyes. Uh, it broke my heart. And yet I gave thanks. Thanks. Because here she is, um, after having struggled for many years, uh, still laying hold of Christ, still wanting to be a part of his church and be a part of the family of God. The book of James opens in a rather crazy way. If you've read the book of James recently, you read the opening couple of verses and you go, huh? Count it all joy that we're to, when we encounter various trials, I don't Think of trials as joy-producing situations. But James very quickly moves on and he says, let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The starting point for James is that none of us is complete. None of us is fully put together. None of us is fully mature yet. There is something yet to be accomplished in each of our lives David prays in Psalm 86, Lord, give me an undivided heart. The translators wrestle with, with how, to, how to express that. Some of your translations will say, Lord, give me an undivided heart. Some will say, Lord, unite my heart. Well, what has to be true for you to pray that prayer? It means you've got parts and pieces laying all over the ground. And you are Humpty Dumpty. And you are coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, how can you put me back together again? How can these various pieces that seem so unrelated be brought back together again. God has created us, I would say, in our personalities in, in three very important dimensions. He's given us understanding. He's given us affection and volition. That he's created us to know things, most of all him, right? He's also created us to love, to desire things. He's also created us to act, to be, be people of action, to make choices. And when David prays, Lord, unite my heart, and you think about those components of personality, don't you understand very quickly how we experience that? Lord, I know what I should do, but do I do it? No. I know what I should love, but do I love? We, it doesn't take very long for us to be self-reflective enough to see how the, the elements of our, of our personality are at war with each other. And we can pray this prayer very honestly. Lord, unite my heart. I want to understand what I love, what I do. I want there to be no incoherence in my life. I want to be whole. And that's really the purpose of this study center. And we have a, a study center in, in, in Ithaca at Cornell called Chesterton House. And the missions are the same, to help people live a whole life, to make the connection between their education, what they're learning, their vocations, their faith, their families, 
and the world that they live in. And so we hear the Lord tell us how we are to live our lives. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. There's that theme again, isn't it? He says, I know, I know what, what the parts and pieces of your life are like. I want you to be whole. I want you to be united as people. Become whole persons. Become, as C.S. Lewis likes to say, to become more fully human because you have wholly devoted yourself to God. And your mind and your affections and your will become united in this loyalty to the Lord your God. And Jesus doesn't miss a beat. He says, and you love your neighbor as you love yourself. All that God requires of you, the whole of God's word hangs upon these two commands. And of course, that has a lot to do with our topic tonight, the disconnection, the disorder that we feel in particular ways and experience in particular ways related to our our sexual identity. Well, the title of this theme is Before the Fig Leaves, but that's really only to get us going because we're not going to stay there very long. But we have to go back there in order to make sense of where we are right now. And so to understand sexual identity, we need to go back to God's creation of sex. And relevant verses for us are in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, and then a couple of verses in uh, chapter 2. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over it, over every living thing that moves on the earth. In chapter 2, when he talks about the, these charges, he, he charges his image bearers to work and keep the creation. And then in, in chapter 2, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And after God does that, man said, This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And then the writer comments on this action. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They had no need of fig leaves. Oh, that's not the text. That's me. So here in these opening verses, in a, in, in a very brief way, God has created sex. He has created us as embodied beings who possess sex. We are either male or female. But then there's also the idea of gender. And the difference between gender and sex is sex is that, that uh, sort of what we are and gender is how we live as what we are in the, uh, in the world and in relationship with one another. Gender is our lived experience of sex. Sex cannot be held in abstraction. It is an embodied reality. And the body is made for living. It's made for culture making in all the social and ethical dimensions that that implies. And so here at the beginning, even in these very few verses, we see that the two sexes work together. They work in relationship to each other to accomplish three very important things. One is to bear God's image. It takes maleness and femaleness together in relationship with each other for the glory of God, for the image of God to be, to be displayed in the earth. And that is God's intention. It is, our, it is God's intention for each one of us to be in relationship with people of the opposite sex. Now, obviously, not to the same degree. I'm only married to one 
one female person over here. This happens to be Cheryl. Uh, and I'm quite content with that. <laughs> right. uh, so, but nevertheless, God has made each of us to be in relationship with people uh, of the opposite sex, of the other sex. Uh, secondly, uh, God has made us as sexed beings in order to form society. It is together as male and female that we carry out the creation mandate. God doesn't say to males, do this, this, and this, and to females, do this, this, and this. It is in relationship with each other, males and females, that we are to engage in all the work of creation, the stewardship of creation, the cultivation of the world, the management of it, the invention of new ideas. All that is involved in culture making and the building of civilization is the work of males and females in relationship to one another. And then thirdly, it is God has created us as males and females in order to establish marriage. Marriage, by God's design, is between a man and a woman, between male and female. And there's that, you know, even that physical complementarity that makes the, the function of marriage, uh, uh, procreation, uh, even possible. So, uh, some things to uh, conclude. And I've noted some of these things on your, on your handout. Uh, you may find it more distracting to follow the handout, or you may find it helpful. So, whichever... Uh, you prefer. By the way, um, I was just reading a, a, a piece by David Brooks, the uh, editorialist for the New York Times, and he was lamenting the, the current political circus uh, that is going on. And he says that one thing that has been revealed to him in the, or that is revealed in the current political climate is that we need to learn or relearn what it means to be masculine and feminine. I think that's an interesting observation, interesting takeaway from what is being played out on the news every week, every day. So a couple of uh, conclusions from uh, what God has created. Firstly, we are to honor the sex that we possess, that is, being male. we are to honor being male and female, as well as the sex possessed by others, and the relationships that depend on the way that we express maleness and femaleness to one another. For instance, marriage. So we are to find a way, uh, as, we, as we recognize who, who we are as males and females, we are to value that and then to honor that in the other. So uh, as, a, as a man in relationship with another man, how do I enrich and enhance and nourish his masculinity? As I'm in relationship with another woman, how do I nurture and encourage and enhance and enrich her being a woman, her being female. Secondly, we're to honor our sex because it is in and through the male-female distinction in community that God makes himself known in the world and in the church. Now, I'll come back to this uh, a little bit more, a little bit later, but this idea of, of being in relationship with each other, male, God has made us to be in relationship as males and females, you have but to telescope back just a little bit. And when you see when that gets multiplied, there is community there. And so this idea of male and female in relationship with each other is something that informs not just culture at large, but the church in particular. The church is a society in itself. The church is a community in itself. And for those of you who are Christians, uh, being a part of this family means that we are learning uh, 
in perhaps deeper and richer ways what it means to be males and females in relationship with other males and females. And that is to be an embodied reality in the church. People who step into the community of the church should be able to look at the way that we live with one another and, and, and behave toward one another and say, look at how they honor each other. Look at how they ennoble each other. And not the least of which is in this area of sex. Thirdly, cultural expressions that identify maleness and female, femaleness are not right and wrong in themselves, but their ordained purpose is to distinguish maleness and femaleness, a distinction which is critical to applying biblical ethics for sexual behavior and to forming relationships such as marriage. That is, okay, we, we, we can talk conceptually about this idea of I'm a male or I'm a female, but that really doesn't do us any good unless I communicate that in some way. There are ways that we express our sex, and that becomes engendered in, in our relationships and in our, our behaviors. The, the underlying idea behind God's creation of maleness and females, if marriage is going to happen, if community, this kind of community is going to happen, we have to be able to say to each other, I'm a male, you're a female. And we have to have some way of knowing that. And so we, we, we uh, if you will, invent cultural forms that communicate that. I remember uh, when uh, Cheryl and I were in Nepal a few years ago, and if you've, you know, we are not widely traveled. You know, we're not, you know, my, my visa is not, uh, doesn't have lots of stamps on it. Um, but here we are in Nepal, and uh, we were given some... Uh, local clothing, some Nepali clothing. And uh, I don't know whether you've ever seen the, the, these uh, kurtasawalis, uh, the, the women's uh, dresses. They're just beautiful. And uh, it's just a wonderful sense of elegance, uh, even, even in the midst of poverty, great elegance and poise. And so Cheryl put on her kurtasawali, and she's ready to go out the door. She's like, no, 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 you can't go out yet. Why not? Oh, you, you have to have bangles because you don't want to go out as an unmarried woman. Oh, okay, well, I'll put the bangles on my wrist and I will communicate to the world, I'm a married woman. Who would have thought that? Well, somebody obviously did, and that's a part of their, their cultural language. You know, we use things like rings. And when we look at one another, we notice that if you're wearing a ring, aha, you're married. Uh, you belong to someone in a, in a very particular way. Um, there are lots and lots of ways that we express... Um, our, our sexual identity, and, uh, and our relationship to other people. Now, there are a couple of texts that are really relevant to this point. I'm not going to have time to unpack them a whole lot, but you may have already been thinking about them. One of them is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, discern for yourselves. An interesting way to Paul introduces this. Discern for yourselves. It's, he's kind of suggesting, uh, okay, what rules are you going to use here? Uh, make sense of this thing that's going on. Uh, culturally and socially. Discern for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair off or shave her head, let her not cover her head as, let her cover her head as a symbol of, of authority. And we read that and we go, What's going on here? You know, right? 
Now, there, there are some in the, in the very large Christian family who said, well, these are rules to live by. And so there are, there are some uh, members of the Christian community who read this and they say, yep, okay, these are rules. These are, these are cultural forms that we are to carry with us wherever we go. Uh, I don't think that's, that's the best reading of the text. I think the simplest reading of the text is simply there are ways culturally that we learn to communicate with each other and we're to honor those. You know, in this particular culture, if, you sh- if a woman shaved her head, she was considered a prostitute. Well, that's not true today. That's not true in our culture. Um, and as you look culturally from, um, if, if you're an anthropologist and you look at different cultures, you find that, that each culture has, uh, in many ways, its own peculiar way of saying, I'm a man, you're a woman. Um, it's not undermining maleness and femaleness, but it's a different way of explaining it, a different way of expressing it, and a different way of showing relationship of males to females. And so when Paul here says, uh, does not nature itself teach you, uh, I really think the best way to read that is reading nature as this, this, this common, this culture, this, this way of, uh, of uh, that um, these markers are working in your particular culture. Uh, then there's the Deuteronomy 22 passage, very strong language for behavior related to cross-dressing. Um, that is, the, the, the writer there uses uh, the word abomination to express uh, behavior related to cross-dressing. Uh, for now, all I'll simply say is that clearly one of the things that is being, being undermined in that prohibition, uh, or the, 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 the prohibition is speaking against, is a confusion of the sexes. Uh, there's, there's to be this, uh, we're to find ways to uh, clearly communicate our maleness and our femaleness. And if you think about it for a second, you know, in the Middle Eastern culture, um, you know, the, the clothing is very similar. You know, the, the uh, male clothing and female clothing in many cases look, look very, very different, but there are subtle differences. Uh, even there, there are ways to uh, distinguish them. So all of that is before the fig leaf. But that's not the world we live in, is it? Um, we each experience shame. We each experience guilt, all as a result of uh, the, res- the result of sin in the world. I, I like this summary that uh, Tim Keller has offered in his uh, book on work uh, called Every Good Endeavor. He says, the, world, the whole earth is good. It is what God declared it to be at the beginning. The whole earth is fallen. The whole earth is being redeemed. Now, which one of those can you leave out and not have a, uh, a lopsided theology of the world and our place in it? You have to say all three of those, even though in many ways they're, they're at odds. The world is good, but it's fallen. Okay, come on. Well, which is it? <laughs> yes, it is both, and it's being redeemed. So even when we see the, the, the depths of brokenness, even when we see uh, tremendous disorder, we do not abandon the premise of what the world is. The world is being redeemed. Again, we go back to where we started. Only God can put Humpty Dumpty back together again, and he has promised to do it. Meanwhile, we live with egg on our face. But no person since Adam and Eve, except for Jesus, has experienced an uncorrupted or complete understanding and expression of sex. 
Now, I think that's a very important statement to make and, and think about for just a second, because in so many cases, we think of ourselves as normal, right? We, we're, the, we're the measure of, what, of the way things are supposed to be. We're very self-forgiving. Uh, I had a friend tell me, you know, we judge, we judge others by their actions. We judge ourselves by our intentions. <laughs> right. I meant well, so cut me some slack. But this is where our, our doctrine of sin as we, and, our, and our belief in grace becomes so important. To be able to say, just with abandon, I am more sinful than even I know myself. I am more broken than I can even get my mind and heart around. Uh, and yet to entrust ourselves to God's grace and mercy. And that's true for sex as well. Our understanding of maleness and femaleness. No one in this room has experienced or understands the fullness of what it means to be male and female. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, you know in part and you see in part. You see hints and glimmers. There are times, you know, of, of all the marriages that you know, you know, there are a couple that when you're with them, I mean, it's like the heavens part and you see a glimpse of glory. But not all. And so there's this tension, we, 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 this, uh, this theological tension that we have to talk about here. And uh, we use the words that, to distinguish the extent of the fall, how, how deep the rabbit hole goes, by making the distinction between total and utter now, if, you, if you're familiar with some theological language, you may have heard of, of total depravity. You know, and you know, if you're not from circles where you, you know, that language is familiar, think, oh, yeah, those people who just talk about sin all the time. Well, you know, there's a lot to talk about, and um, that, leads, that gives us an opportunity to talk about grace, right? But what's the difference between total and other? utter? Uh, total means in every element, every part uh, this, room, this building has 10 rooms, okay? And we would say there are people in all 10 rooms. So it's totally filled. But it's not filled to its absolute maximum capacity. We can get more bodies in here, you know? We can, we can cram more bodies in that telephone booth. And the difference is, is total talks about every constituent part of the whole has been tainted and polluted and, and touched by sin. Nothing escapes the presence and the power of sin. Nothing not even down to the smallest molecules of the universe. But is the world as utterly, is the, sorry, is the world as, as completely uh, devastated by sin as it could be? No. Even the psalmist writes, after the fig leaf, the psalmist writes, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The whole earth is full of his goodness. The world is good. The world is fallen. The world is being redeemed. Now, what is it that keeps the world from being utterly polluted by sin? It is God's mercy, but I would say to you, it's even more than that. It is his promise. The Noahic covenant plays a huge role in our understanding of what we're experiencing in the world. God speaks to Noah and he says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, as the writer of Hebrews tells us that 
Christ is the one who is sustaining and upholding the world. There's an active tense into God's creative present power in, in holding the world. God is preserving regularity. You know, when you, when you get up tomorrow morning, the sun will rise in the east, not in the west. When you plant crops in the ground and if you water them, you know, unless you have a, a wacky winter, you know, when things work like they're supposed to, or if you don't forget to water the plants like I do, they grow, they bloom, and you, you can anticipate what's going to happen because of the regularity of life. Why is that? Why is it that, that so many of us were born into the world with, with two hands and two arms and two legs and two eyes and one nose and one mouth and two ears? It is because of God's promise, God's active promise to preserve the world and keep it from being, keep sin at bay. What must he know that we don't about the power of sin to do the damage that it would do apart from his intervention? And so we all experience simultaneously order and disorder with respect to sex and gender. Um, And one of the ways that we experience that is in this area of gender dysphoria, uh, sometimes referred to as trans, transsexualism or tra being trans. So what is gender dysphoria? I'm relying here on the definition of Mark Yarhouse, who is, he's about the only person, only evangelical person that I know of uh, who is writing on this topic. Gender dysphoria is the experience of distress associated with the incongruence wherein one's psychological and emotional gender identity does not match one's biological sex. Gender dysphoria exists when one's interior sexual identification, I am male-female, conflicts with one's biological sex. I have a female or a male body. Now, I would say that for most of you, thanks to the Noahic Covenant, that's not a problem you face. That's not something you live with. You look in the mirror, and you're able to see who you are. Genuine gender dysphoria is distinct from forms of transsexualism that result from delusion or are motivated by sexual self-gratification. Now, I don't... You know, the, the whole trans movement has been in the news, uh, whether you like it or not. It's been in our face for, you know, the last year or so. Uh, the transition of Bruce Jenner to Caitlyn Jenner, you know, has been fodder for uh, the tabloids for, well, they're still, uh, they're still uh, giving that front page news. And with all the, the recent uh, bathroom laws that have, uh, I've got, I have a rental car. It has North Carolina plates on it. I'm thinking, oh, great, I'm going to drive into the city tomorrow and somebody's going to key my car. <laughs> um, but you, it, it's, you can be fair in, in uh, recognizing that there are uh, people who are experiencing this condition that we call gender dysphoria, this conflict, uh, that are not being driven by simply a, a desire to act out sexually uh, some sort of uh, personal gratification. As we talk more about it, you'll see why that's just total, totally inconsistent with what 
gender dysphoria really is and how it's experienced. Also, there is this interior-exterior tension in dysphoria, this, this conflict between what is perceived and what is experienced. And when we talk about interior elements of our being, we're not saying that these are immaterial or unsubstantial, but simply unseen parts of our bodies. You know, I don't see your brain, but I know your brain is there doing its thing, and you've got blood running through your vein, there, and all the way down to the chromosomal level. They're just uh, as a, one, of the, one of the guys at my church several years ago says, I, I know I don't look very busy, but at, at the molecular level, I'm really quite busy. <laughs> yeah, it's that kind of interior-exterior uh, tension. Gen- genuine dysphoria is a conflict related to sexual identity, not sexual attraction. Most of the folks who uh, have been willing to talk about their experience of what we'll call genuine gender dysphoria have have said, this is not about my desire to to engage in sexual activity. In fact, most people who experience this have a a lack of interest in sexual activity, and that simply adds to their burden because it would be sort of nice to be attracted, to be wanted by someone, and it just adds to their loneliness and their isolation. Gender dysphoria is a rare condition. Uh, There's just not a lot of research that's available yet. That's beginning to happen now through people like Mark Yarhouse and uh, and others. But it's uh, a very, very small, you know, less than 1%. However, the onset can be as early, and this is for genuine gender dysphoria, the onset can be as early as four to five years of age, which is exactly the case with the, the young person in our congregation. Uh, as she began to describe to me what it, what it felt like for her to be, be dressed as a girl, even as a four-year-old, uh, to uh, be, be placed in a group with other girls, what that felt like, even as a very young child. Most cases of this dysphoria do not persist beyond age 18. There's, it's related to uh, hormonal changes. It's related to other things that are going on in a, in a person's mind, developmental, they're related to the development of that person. And uh, the majority of cases dissolve and uh, go away around age 18. But for some, they persist. Genuine gender dysphoria has no known cause or cure, and there is no evidence that anyone chooses or wants to live with this condition. Uh, when you hear their stories, there's, there's no way you can come away uh, from hearing someone's experience with this to say, oh, yeah, this is just something you want to do. Oh, right. Yeah, you, that you want to live your life in chaos. You want to live your si- life in, in fear. You want to live your life uh, just in, in utter despair. Uh, I don't think anybody would say that's what they want to do. That's the way they want to live. Engendered dysphoria, like many results of the fall, is painful and worthy of sorrow, but is not in itself a sin that requires repentance. I really hope you believe that. Uh, All of us live with elements of brokenness that we wish were different or that could be different. Even some of you here who either today or or have lived with same-sex attraction, you know, you you know that there's something, something in you that is directed in that way, and yet simply, simply being that way does not make you sinful. You've not committed a sin simply because you, you find yourself vulnerable. If you're a recovering alcoholic, 
you know, you will introduce yourself for the rest of your life. Hi, I'm Steve. I'm an alcoholic. And if you don't, you know what will happen. You will stop believing that you're an alcoholic and you'll start drinking again. There is great anguish, and then there is the question of how do you pursue relief? One of the early, very prescient writers on this subject is Oliver O'Donovan, um, just a great Christian ethicist now in his 90s. Uh, I wrote him. I was just amazed that he wrote back. Uh, he sent him an email, and I, I told him what I was, what I was going through and, and asking for some guidance. And... Uh, you could just hear the grandfatherless in his, uh, in his email. He said, how are the parents? How are they doing? Are you caring for them? So he writes, while not every person with gender dysphoria experiences the conflict with the same level of intensity, the pain is commonly so great that many who experience gender dysphoria attempt suicide. Christian ethicist Oliver O'Donovan regards gender dysphoria as, quote, a condition which has so far proved intransigent to every mode of psychiatric treatment. It should be no surprise, then, that those with this condition may seriously consider a change of expression or a change of physiology to resolve the incongruity with their identity. In fact, their very insistence in pursuing the hope of surgical intervention shows with what anguish they experience the dividedness of physical sexuality from gender identity. It's another way of looking at it, isn't it? You hurt so badly that you're willing to go to that end. So coming back a little bit to where we started, remember David's prayer, Lord, unite my heart, Humpty Dumpty? Gender dysphoria can result from a lack of coherence among several facets of human biology that comprise a person's sex. I know when we are speaking sort of quickly and sometimes crudely, we say, well, I know, what, I know what sex I am. Just look down my pants. You know, that answers all questions. But if you read a book on marriage, what's the most important organ when it comes to, to love? It is the brain, right? Yes. So there's anatomy. There's brain function. There's chemistry and hormones. There's genetic and chromosomes. There's attraction. There's even spiritual alliances. You know, Paul has these really amazing statements about the, the, the spiritual dimension of, uh, of our sexuality. He says, he says, don't you know that if you go, you know, hook up with a prostitute, that Christ is there being joined to her? What does that mean? I'm not real sure, but that doesn't sound very good. But it does say something about this spiritual component that, you know, I, that's not something I can control or get my hands on. So, Let's think for a few minutes about sex and gender and the body. When we pray for wholeness, we pray for wholeness because matter matters. Uh, as Christians, one of the reasons that this study center exists is because we believe the world matters. We believe the stuff of the world is important to the work of redemption. The world is good. The world is fallen. The world is being redeemed. God loves the world. He loves the stuff of the world. 
as well as the people of the world. And the body is essential to the whole person. When we think about this business of gender dysphoria, we have to think about a theology of the body. Uh, both its identity and its function, both its being male and female, and its the, the, the function, the, its ability to have relationships, and particularly uh, to engage in the work of procreation and marriage. And so the body's essential to understanding and living with our own sex, with identifying and relating to the opposite sex and the ethics which govern sexual behavior. Uh, you know, very basically, many of the, the, the ethical demands, ethical commands given to us related to sexual behavior have to do with our bodies. And uh, we, we cannot escape that in our obedience uh, to what the Lord has called us to, to be. Um, Understanding and living with our own sex means that we understand something about the weakness of our sex and the, 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 something of the character of it. And one of the ways that we can see this is, again, going very back to the very beginning in Genesis 3.16, when God begins pronouncing the curse on the world for sin. And he says to our first parents, uh, he says to Adam and Eve, that... Um, uh, uh, he says to, to Eve, your desire shall be for him, but he shall rule over you. Um, that's not a good thing. That's a curse. And what, what God is telling Adam and Eve, what he's telling males and females, is that the effects of sin in the world impacts the way that we relate to each other as males and females, particularly in that most intimate of relationships in marriage where we give ourselves license and freedom to do what we wouldn't do anywhere else. He says, your desire shall be for him. The idea is uh, of the the, the general, and these are, you know, generally true. There are always exceptions, you know, in in human experience. But generally... The soft use of anger, the subversive use of anger, pulling the rug out from underneath. But his desire, but he will rule over you. He will crush you. He will pound you. He will smack you in the face. And that's exactly what we experience, isn't it? Men who feel shamed, men who feel neutered, and women who are bloodied. I mean, how many battered men's shelters are there? How many battered women's shelters are there? So if we are to understand the impact of sin, the impact of our brokenness with respect to our sex, we have to recognize our weaknesses with respect to our sex. And so the biblical view of the body in marriage assumes the complementarity of the sexes, male and female, the capacity to recognize and desire the other sex, the necessity of sexual complementarity for procreation. Uh, I'm going to have to jump a little bit here because looking at the clock, I don't want to take advantage of your time here. some of the ethical implications when we think about, as we begin to bring this idea of brokenness, particularly this, this, this uh, troubled phenomenon of gender dysphoria with a, a theology of the body, some of the ethical implications that I think we 
we have to affirm here is that rebellion against the created order is sin. When we rebel against the idea of maleness and femaleness, when we, when we rebel against the idea that, that uh, say, sex is simply what I want it to be, I get to, I get to create myself. Now, we do that in many, many other ways and give ourselves forgiveness. Like, you know, oh, I want to be God and be the, the head of my corporation. I want to be God and be the, 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 the domineer, domineer of my family. You know, um, we create ourselves in our own image. Uh, and that is certainly true for many with respect to sex. Sex is what I want it to be. Sex is what I can make it. Sex is what I, what I choose it to be. So rebellion against the created order with respect to God's, God's notion of maleness and femaleness is sin. But is the desire for wholeness, is the desire for Humpty Dumpty to be put back together again, is that desire to resolve conflict an act of rebellion? Because that's really what someone with, gender, with true gender dysphoria wants. They want to be whole. They, want, they don't want to be a mixed bag. They don't want to be a, you know, a, 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 both fish and fowl. They want to be a male. They want to be a female. They want to be a man. They want to be a woman. We are to live, secondly, we are to live unambiguously as our given sex. In other words, we're to, we're to find ways to, to be male, to be female, to be who we are. And yet, if the conflict of gender dysphoria makes the identification of sex difficult, then what determines... Um, my note here. Oh, then what determines the sex toward which uh, a person lives? Thirdly, if a person's given or ontological sex cannot be changed, then are physical alterations sinful, are they futile, or are they helpful? I'm going to skip over these points of warning against Gnosticism. You know what Gnosticism is, the sort of spirit versus uh, material tension. It's been with us for the last, uh, well, for forever. Uh, and pitting the body against the spirit, choosing the spirit over the body is uh, another form of Gnosticism. There needs to be in all this an encouragement toward gratitude. This is true for every one of us, to, to treat who we are as, uh, as, as having received a gift uh, to, to hold what we are and who we are with a sense of stewardship. So let's uh, then talk for a few minutes about gender dysphoria and Christian faithfulness. We're to live with humility and commitment to the goodness of God's order. That means that we take creation seriously and that we live by faith. We believe what God says about the identity and function of the body and about sex and about marriage and about our gendered lives. Um, We take creation seriously and we live by faith. There are principles of being male and female embedded in God's good creation and explained in God's word. We are to honor these as God's design for us and our relationships. Bending our lives to the arc of God's will can be hard and frequently requires sacrifice and courage, but the Spirit by His indwelling power helps us understand God's design and order order our lives for His glory and our good. Perhaps most relevant to this conversation is the place of maintaining clear gender distinctions in the economy of God's providence. And secondly, with compassion and courage, 
Uh, we're not only to live with humility and commitment, we're to live with compassion and courage in the face of the limitations of our brokenness. That is, we take the fall seriously and we love. We live in a broken world as broken people. Every one of us is broken in ways that are sometimes obvious, sometimes not obvious. In some dimensions of brokenness, we experience, by God's grace, substantial healing. In many dimensions, we suffer and endure disabilities we cannot change so that by God's grace, we wait for transformation in the world made new. In addition to God's word, we look to God's world, his common grace, for help in bringing some order and relief to the persistent disorder of the world. These efforts to bring order and relief, while real and meaningful, are always partial and imperfect. We lean hard on God's grace to sustain us through a life marked by suffering at every turn. And while we are always to live with God's creational goodness in view, we admit that no efforts in this life to undo our fallenness are fully successful in restoring the creational order. We cannot escape the brokenness of life. And thirdly, we are to live with grace and patience as we struggle to work out the tension between commitment and limitations. That is, we take redemption seriously and we wait with hope. That is, we live between Christ's resurrection and return, between the promise and fulfillment. Redemption is a certainty, even though we experience profound and sometimes terrifying uncertainty as we live through the process of being redeemed. We are not yet what we will be. And as a result, we live in tension between the concurrent realities of redemption and brokenness. Now, those three categories, uh, that the faith, hope, and love, map onto our discussion uh, Uh, with the categories that that Mark Yarhouse has given us. Christian faithfulness inhabits the biblical trifocal paradigm of faith, hope, and love. Or faith is our duty. Hope is disability. Love and diversity. With respect to duty, this is where most of us live. Most of us who take the word of God seriously, we want to be faithful to all that God has said, This is where most of us live. Many Christians respond to the troubles of life simply by listing God's rules. In the name of duty, some Christians insist that our only response to brokenness is conformity to obligations. Even many non-Christians operate with heavily loaded legalistic language of what we must say, do, or allow. And so there's this duty component. And that has to be there for us. We are people who submit our lives to God's word to what God has revealed in his, uh, in his word. And some of those things we've touched on already. But then there's the disability component. And here we find you know, a mixture of Christians and non-Christians uh, frequently in this category. Many who confront the brokenness of life are ruled predominantly by compassion, by love. And in the name of love, people give each other permission to make choices based solely on personal fulfillment, healing, and happiness. As I tell the uh, couples that I counsel uh, prior to marriage, I said, your marriage is not about your happiness. Your marriage is about holiness. And yet, you know how many of the decisions that you make are driven by this will just make me feel better. Even down to that donut or that piece of pie or that bowl of ice cream, it, the What drives that? It just will make me feel better. And it's okay. Diversity. This is what we read mostly about in the news. 
Much of the culture around us places a high value on autonomy and independence. In the name of diversity, individuals pride themselves in doing what is right in their own eyes, being true to themselves, being authentic, and in rejecting any notion of creational order. But here's the deal. If we're going to find a solution, if we're going to live in community, we're going to live with each other and, and wrestle with the experience of gender dysphoria, we have to inhabit all three of these all three of these areas. We have to give attention to what God has said, where he speaks plainly, say what he says and no more. We also have to recognize the genuine brokenness of life. And not in a way which says, you're the broken one, uh, I'm, I'm in good shape, you know? So let me fix you. No, 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 no. That's not the way it works. I'm broken and you are broken too. And together we lean hard on God's grace. But the brokenness is real. We can't fix everything. If we could, we'd be God. And you look like nice people, but I'm not ready to, you know, ask you for the forgiveness of my sins. And diversity. What does it look like when this works out? When we, when we step into the struggle of life? You, you've all... You know, you've all read you know, the self-help section at the bookstore is the biggest, fattest section in the whole bookstore, right? People say, here are the 10 rules of how to fix your marriage. Here are the 10, how to raise perfect kids. Here are the, you know, 15 steps to, you know, doing whatever. That's what we want. But that's not the way life works. And it's not the way life works in the kingdom of God either. God calls us, you know, back to James these trials, these struggles, these painful things that smack us in the face day after day after day, we tell ourselves God is at work in all of these things. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will not abandon you. He will not leave you as some half-finished, you know, Boy Scout popsicle stick birdhouse project that's been sitting on the basement workbench for the last 40 years. He will bring you to completion. He'll bring you to glory. But what does that path look like experientially? I promise you it will look different for each of our lives. And we have to give ourselves room to have conversations that allow for that variety experientially to work out. And so given the, what are the boundaries and limits related to gender dysphoria? Given the reliability of the body to reveal a person's sex, exceptions are rare. We should rely on physiology as an indicator of sex unless we have significant reason to believe otherwise. Given that God created sex as the basis for relationship with himself and others, exceptions are to be recognized in community. It's a word we've heard a number of times tonight. I hope it's beginning to soak in in a fresh way. And I hope it's what's happening here in this room tonight, too. I hope you're here because you're part of something more than yourself. You belong to each other. Exceptions are to be recognized in community, not autonomously. And I have to say, this is where I think many folks who struggle, not just in this area with gender dysphoria, but with with many personally devastating troubles, the temptation is to feel, I'm alone. There is no one who understands me. There's no one who's been down this road before me. And somehow, we have to come alongside them and say, you are not alone. I'm with you, and so is God. 
Exceptions require corroborating support from those in a position to speak knowledgeably about a person's mind, body, spirit, affections, and chemistry. It's no small thing to conclude that a person's anatomy is communicating inaccurate information about that person's sex. And self-diagnosis, while important, is insufficient to justify an exception. Given that sex is a complex and deeply mysterious gift from God, we must be humble about oversimplifying that complexity and speaking with improper confidence about matters that we know only in part. God assures us that he will give us sufficient knowledge to live faithfully, but he offers no expectation that we can know things comprehensively. And this assurance is true when we're making difficult decisions about understanding and charting a way through deep confusion and uncertainty related to sex. Given God's covenant, we should not be surprised by the regularity of life that results from his covenant faithfulness. But we must not confuse his faithfulness with the eradication of brokenness in this life. We experience change and healing by his redemption and sustaining grace. And we give thanks for the predictability of life due to his providence. By his grace, it is common for us to rest in self-knowledge and to delight in the knowledge of others. Given the nature of evil, we should not be surprised by the degree to which we can witness the destruction of God's good creation. Evil is present in the world and in us before we act, before we make our contribution to this present evil age. There is no part of the universe untouched by the fall and sin. So we know that we will witness confusion and disorder in the most profound and disorienting ways in every area of life, including sex. Given the resurrection of Jesus and the promise of God, we may live together with our brokenness and sadness in hope, knowing that he is making all things new. One day, he will wipe away all tears, and we will stand in his presence, known by his name, male and female, whole, complete, without conflict, and full of glory. I want to close with uh, Paul's words to the Corinthians in his second letter. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters, of the affliction that we experienced. Now, this is the Apostle Paul writing, okay? A mere mortal. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. If the Lord in his goodness brings into your life someone who struggles with, death, with gender dysphoria, I hope you can pray this for them and say that to them. That you live with them with simplicity and godly sincerity and that they know it. I'll stop there.
This has been a production of the Dwark Hill Study Center. All our lectures and classes are available for free streaming or for purchase on CD and download at dwarkhill.org. Please visit our website to receive more information regarding the Study Center and upcoming events, and to view articles and blogs from our contributors.